All right. Well, come on back and uh, <clears throat> you can take a seat and uh, grab your Bibles, preferably if you have to, grab your devices. I'm just kidding. And uh, don't grab your devices. No. I'm <laughs> and turn to the eighth chapter of the book of John. The eighth chapter of the book of John. And we have been following along here. We are now in the last six months of Jesus' life. The last six months. Uh, it's incredible if you think about it. Look, we're only in chapter 7 and 8 here. In other words, the whole entire rest of the book of, uh, the, of John is devoted to the last six months of Jesus' life. And we have said several times that the book of John is different than the other gospels, the synoptic gospels. Book of John has 92% original material in this gospel, 92%. So you see that the Holy Spirit through John is writing for a particular purpose. The particular purpose is that you would believe, John chapter 20, that he is the Christ, the one who fulfills all the Old Testament scriptures, and that he's the Son of God. He's God the Son. Jesus is God. And that doesn't make a big difference to some groups. <laughs> Help those people. <laughs> but to Jesus, it makes all the difference in the world. You can't just think, he says, not me, that Jesus is just a good guy or a good prophet or is just a man. That's not, he leaves you no option here in the book of John. Not me, not us saying that. Jesus himself says it, and he's going to say it again today. But the book of John is for us to see who he is much more so than the other gospels they do show who he is. The other gospels do do that. But they show what he did more. <laughs> That's more of their focus. And so not only for those who are outside of Christ, the book of John's written, but for those who are in Christ and Christ's in them, it's that there would be an explosion in our hearts of praise and worship about who he is. That's what this is for. Remember, like the eagle, <clears throat> the eagle looks right into the sun and is not harmed. We're looking at the sun, S-O-N, and our, and our lives and our hearts are transformed by the praise that just comes out of us when we understand uh, by the Holy Spirit who he is. So turn with me then to John chapter 8. I think one of the things that's great for you to do and great for me to do is just to sort of remember the chapters in a general way by what happened. In chapter 6, just let me remind you, Jesus fed the 5,000, and that was his opportunity to say that he is the bread from heaven. Do you remember that? And remember, that's a direct uh, reference to the manna in the wilderness. Everybody tracking with me? 
And when you get to chapter 7, you see, Jesus, on the last great day of the feast, verse 37, he stands and he cries out and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You'll become, you you won't just drink the water yourself, you will do that, but you'll become a channel of living water. And this is a direct reference to the time that Moses struck the rock and how God provided in the dry, dusty, parched wilderness. Everybody with me? Because John does it again here in chapter 8. In chapter 8, he says this, and I'm actually going to start in chapter 7, the last verse. And everyone went to his own house. After Jesus is rejected by the authorities, the Bible tells us in 753, uh, that everyone went to their own house. But watch this, and I'm going to ask the guys to put this up. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and I think we have a picture of the Mount of Olives or a view from the Mount of Olives. Yeah, we do. So here's a picture from the Mount of Olives over to the old city of Jerusalem. Jesus was sitting right here. Not just sitting here, he was camping out. Uh, I, we have a couple more. You can just see some of the different views, but that's uh, uh, the eastern gate over there, and this is Jesus, and that's the Kidron Valley right there, the Temple Mount. Here's a closer-up picture of the city of Jerusalem. This is what Jesus was looking at as he's camped out on the Mount of Olives. One more, I think. Oh, wow, I'm just zooming right in there for you, but that's the view. That's the view that Jesus has. He's walked from the Temple Mount area because it was the Feast of the Tabernacles. Raise your hand if you remember what the Feast of the Tabernacles was. The Feast of the Tabernacles in chapter 7 is a time in which, uh, under Leviticus 23, what a great book, Leviticus. My favorite book of the Bible. No kidding. It's my favorite book of the Bible. I'm not kidding you about that. When you understand the book of Leviticus, it'll revolutionize your life. But anyway, in Leviticus chapter 23, the Bible, or God set up the feasts, the memorials, the celebrations in which the Jewish people were to come back into Israel. There were seven feasts. They were to come back on three of the feasts. And the last feast was the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day feast plus one, so sort of like eight days. Seven-day feast, and it was a happy amazing, beautiful time, a celebration and singing. And what they did is they camped out. They've set up little booths to remind themselves of how, how God took care of them in the wilderness. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. And watch this. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. Amazing. He has nowhere to lay his head. The people are comfortable and go right back to their comfort. He goes right to his father. Look out over uh, the city and to pray and to connect with the father. And then it says early in the morning... He came again into the temple. So I want you to think about this. The Feast of the Tabernacles is over. You get me? It's the next day. So if you're a pilgrim from Jerusalem, you just went back to your house. But think about it. There's Galilee and all the areas up there. These people had to make a 70-mile, 65-mile trek. 
So they're gathering their stuff. It's early, but they're gathering their stuff and they're leaving. But Jesus now is still interested in the spiritual life of the people. Are you catching it? When they're most distracted about, you know, either our comfort or getting back to our homes or whatever, Jesus just keeps it on. He's still after their hearts. And he goes early in the morning. His life wasn't about comfort. It was about glorifying the Lord. Boy, is that a message for Americans. But anyway, it's early, and he comes again into the temple, and all the people came to him. Now, I want you to see where he went into the temple. Turn over to verse 20 real quick. This is very interesting. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. So here's what I want to tell you. Up in the temple area, there's the temple itself, but then there's some courts that go out from it. The outer court is the court of the Gentiles. Are you catching this? It's where everybody could go, Jew, non-Jew. They all could go into the court of the Gentiles. The next court in is called the court of the women. It's where the ladies and the men could go who were Jewish. And then the next court after that was, you know, sort of where the men could go and then into the temple. And the reason I'm telling you that is, you know this other fantastic story that took place in the Bible, in the court of the women at the treasury. And the other story you know from the Bible is that time that Jesus was sitting in the court of the treasury and he watched that poor widow take the mites, not the bugs or insects, the little pennies, and he dropped, she dropped them in the treasury and Jesus said, wow, mark it. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Mark that for eternity. That person gave, like really gave. Remember that? And it's a touching story. That happened right here where uh, Jesus is in this court of the treasury. What was the court of the treasury? Well, it was this court, but over on the side of the court, they had these 13 trumpet-looking devices, like big, like standing on its end, like the horn part was down here and it came up to a little place where you could put your money. The first two were for the temple tax and then they had certain places where you could put money for other things. And some extra biblical sources say, this is fascinating, they had some sort of way in which to light those things up. So if it was early in the morning or late at night, they lit up. I I don't know. I just read. But that's what's going on. And here's where he is in chapter 8. He's in the treasury, the place where ladies and men could go and where they did their giving. He comes to the temple pursuing people, folks, spiritually teaching now. He comes to them and he sits down. That's fascinating because in chapter 7, he stood up and cried out during the last great day of the feast. That's the way it happened. If people were proclaiming things, they would stand. But if they taught, they would sit. That was the posture they would take. Rabbis, teachers would take a posture of sitting. So he's interested in teaching now, and he taught them. He's now just teaching people who were up in the temple area. Spiritually provocative. He's provoking people to spiritual things. 
Oh, how I need to do that more. I can talk your ear off about a number of different things. You want to talk sports? Nobody can talk sports. Well, a few of you can. <clears throat> like me. You want to talk music? Well, don't talk to me, but you can talk to others about that. But you know what I'm saying. I talk about all kinds of things lots of the day and just waste my breath when I could be spiritually provocative. Oh, Lord, fill us up for us to be this way. From early in the morning till late at night, just extolling your virtues, your characteristics, Lord, blessing people, praying for people, loving people in the name of Christ. That's what he did. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. Let's just talk about who the Pharisees and the scribes were. The Pharisees are this religious sect. They are, along with the Sadducees, this, this, the two main religious sects here in Israel, and they were very orthodox. They followed the first five books of the law, and they followed it to a T. They memorized it. And then they had these oral traditions grow up around the first five books of the law that would interpret the law. Like, for instance, you can still go out on the internet and read these sorts of things. Like, oh, you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath, so what is working? And, and you know, they would, you know, make up all kinds of things. You could walk, I don't know, I'm making up the steps. If you walk 230 steps with, near your home, that was fine. But if you went 231 or 232, now you've just violated the Sabbath. Uh, you can't, I, I, I remember going out on the internet one time and saying, if you pop up a beach ball on the Sabbath day, modern day, you have just violated the Sabbath. I mean, Jesus here gets in very deep trouble. He did in chapter 5 at the pool of Bethesda. Why? Because he healed somebody on the Sabbath. How sick is it that you could do certain things or they could do certain things, but to make somebody whole and to heal them was a violation of their man-made traditions. And Jesus rails against that. And here the Pharisees come. Now to be fair, there are some good Pharisees who are interested, but generally they're very orthodox and very external religiously. Be careful here myself, here in this room, be careful of being an external religious person. Because external religion leads to things like, just read it, hate, unloving attitudes towards other people, bitterness, jealousy, all kinds of stuff. You see it come out of the external religious people who are scribes. They were called the lawyers, man, lawyers, good for us. <clears throat> they were people who were experts in the law, lawyers, scribes, and what they were charged with doing is copying down the scriptures and keeping them perfect. That's who these people are. And they bring to him a woman caught in adultery. Now, I want you to know something. If you looked at Deuteronomy 22, that's the law. Track with me here now. I want you to see this story in a different way. In Deuteronomy 22, 20 through, 22 through 24, and Leviticus 20, chapter 10, in the law. Now, listen, in the law, adultery was a capital offense in Israel. You get this? It was a capital offense. 
But the extra biblical writings say, and I'm not trying to be too graphic, you couldn't just, folks, see a married woman and another married man or whatever go into a room together and shut the door. That didn't count as somebody who would be caught in adultery. No, you had to actually have to see them in the act. And listen to this. The Bible tells us that to establish a matter, do you know this under the old law? Do you know this? That there had to be two or more witnesses to establish the truth of a matter according to the rabbinical law and customs. You could look at that in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, uh, 17, verse 6, Numbers 35, 30. Is everybody tracking with me? So you got these scribes and Pharisees, which is really weird. They're the religious people of the day. And somehow, some way, they caught the woman in adultery, which means they didn't just watch them go in, they watched them in the act. Now, at least that's what they were supposed to do. And the Sanhedrin now would not meet in the court of the women. You getting what I'm saying? This is a sham. <laughs> In some ways, this is all for the purpose of catching Jesus because they want to kill him. That's what this is about. Oh, by the way, I want you to know a couple other things. In Deuteronomy 17:7, the witness who brings a charge against a person in a capital crime, hold on, has to be the person who throws the first stone in the stoning that kills the person as their punishment. Did you catch that? The witness who actually witnesses the crime has to throw the stone. Why? It's, it's ingenious. Because if you didn't really see it, you're not telling the truth, there's no way you'd pick up that stone, right? Here's another thing. In Deuteronomy 19, 16 through 19, if a witness gives false testimony, then the witness is subject to the penalty they are seeking to impose on the alleged criminal. You get it? So if it's a capital offense and they're lying and they find out they're lying, the penalty is death or a capital punishment against the person who's lying. Okay, with all of that as a backdrop, watch this. The scribes and Pharisees bring to him a woman caught in adultery. Oh, by the way, Deuteronomy 22 and Leviticus 20 says both the man and the woman are subject to the capital crime, but they only bring the woman. So weird. This is all a sham. They're just trying to get him. So the scribe, the religious people are trying to get Jesus. I just want you to think about that. The religious people. The outward religious people. And when they had set her in the midst, now remember, there's a Bible study going on. And I wonder, this is just me wondering this. I think if she was caught in adultery and the man wasn't coming along as the Pharisees and the scribes were bringing her, and I'm just thinking they probably didn't treat her that great. I mean, what did they have her in? A bed sheet or something like that? And she's going up to the Temple Mount. I mean, I can believe or I could think or I surmise that she probably was objecting, sort of like kicking and screaming going, and I don't blame her. And here she comes, and they set her right in the midst of a Bible study. 
I mean, we have ESPN alerts going off here, but we never had uh, anything like this. So here they come, and they set her in the midst, and they say to him, watch this, teacher. So they think of him as the rabbi, or at least they're being sarcastic. And they see he's sitting there and leading the group, and they say, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery. Watch this, in the very act. No closed doors, no gossip. They set something up, some sort of trap, to trap this woman and to catch her in the very act, not trying to be too graphic. Now, I wonder where the guy is. Is he following the crowd? Did he come up with them? Did he get to go home? Has he washed his hands of it? I don't know. But here it says, verse 5, Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. And I read you those verses. Deuteronomy 22, Leviticus 20. People should be stoned, a capital offense. Time out, by the way. Many extra-biblical writers say because at the time of Jesus, Rome was in charge of Israel. Everybody know that Rome was in charge. You know this, right? They were the ones who had the, their thumb on Israel now. They were the oppressors. And many extra-biblical commentators, or even most, some say they didn't do this, but most extra-biblical commentators say that Rome stripped Israel of the right to administer capital punishment because they wanted to do it. And they didn't want to upset and and, uh, break the peace at the time, so that all had to run through them. So think about this. None of these folks run it through the Romans, But anyway, the law says that this person should be stoned. Of course, the man should be too. And they say to Jesus, but what do you say? What do you say? This they said testing him. How would this test him? Think about it. If he said, yes, she should be stoned. Think about it. The man's not there. This is an illegal trial. And if he knows that Rome is to administer the justice, well, it's illegal in that regard too. But even more than that, he's the friend of sinners. He sits with them. He ministers to them. He gives them grace and truth and loves them. And what would, he, what would the people the common people who believe in him think, well, so what if he stoned her? But what if he didn't stone her? What if he said, nah, don't stone her? Then the people who religiously orthodox, like the Pharisees and the scribes and others would say, see, he violates the law. So now they have him in a conundrum, right? And the funny part about is, this is they're trying to trap him and they don't even know that he's trapping them. And he's trapping them in the greatest and best way, in a good way. Because what he's doing here is he's giving them opportunity to know who he really is and give their lives over to them. I got to tell you, when people come at me with leading questions or leading agendas, I don't know how you feel about that, but I've sort of been trained in knowing when somebody's coming with a leading question. It's a violation of evidence rules when you're 
deposing somebody or eliciting testimony. But you know what I'm saying. Do you ever had somebody and they always just come and they get this look on their face? Sometimes I get them after the service and they say things like this. Can I ask you a question? And you know when they say it and they have that certain look, they don't really want to know the answer to the question. They want to zing you. Anybody know people like that? Maybe there's some sitting out there. But anyway, <laughs> I'm kidding. There's none sitting out there. Uh, but do you get what I'm saying? Well, Jesus is uh, amazing at this. And so he knows that this is a trap. And really what he's going to do is he's going to turn it around on them. And so they, this they said, testing him. What did they say? They said this, again, just to remind you. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Here comes the trap. Here comes the leading question. Here's the agenda. And he knows he's here. If he answers this way, that happens. If he answers that way, that happens. But he does something amazing. He stoops down and writes on the ground with his finger as though he didn't hear. Amazing to me. He acts like very dismissive here. He stoops down and he just sort of, whatever he does, on the dusty ground of the temple floor, temple mount floor, court of the uh, women, he just sort of doesn't listen to what they're saying. And he doodles something. He writes something as if he didn't hear. So they don't like that. Come on. You didn't listen to the question that we posed. I mean, we got the perfect scenario here. You're going to, they know in their hearts, when you answer this, we got you. Mm. So they continued, it says it, verse 7, they continued asking him. He raised himself up and said to them, he who is at without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And now you know in Deuteronomy 17, 7, if there is a witness, guess what they were to do? Okay, if you're the witness now, you're telling the truth, right? Then you're going to have to pick up the stone and throw first. And the other thing he's saying is, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. He who is without sin among you. In other words, I want you to see something here that maybe you've never seen before. He's saying that the only person that's really qualified to administer the judgment is the one that has no sin. Who's that? Jesus himself. But he's addressing it to these people. He who is without the first sin or who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Now watch. Maybe you didn't know this. He stoops down again, and again he stoops down, and he wrote on the ground. So the question becomes, what did he write? Man, if we knew that, we could write a, a bestseller, because nobody knows what he wrote. But here's what some people have said or think. Maybe he wrote down the Ten Commandments, the law. Maybe he was doodling the Ten Commandments. Maybe he was writing down the commandments. Maybe he was just writing down the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Maybe he was writing that down. How about this? You know that he gave the Sermon on the Mount, and he said, you know that murder is 
or excuse me, uh, adultery is, is, is against the law. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 27 through 30, he says, well, wait a second. If you've lusted in your heart, you've committed adultery. And maybe he was writing down the Sermon on the Mount and reiterating that for them. Here's some other things some people say. What about this? Do you know there's a warning in Jeremiah 17, 13? I'll read it to you. Catch this. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Did you catch this? All who forsake the Lord of Israel shall be ashamed. Watch this. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth. Or in some translations, it's written in the dust. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because why? They have forsaken the Lord. Watch this. Watch this. The fountain of living waters. That's Jeremiah 17, 13. Now remember, what did he say in the chapter prior? That's why I took you through it. If you come to me, you'll have living water flowing in and out of you. And here, maybe he wrote down Jeremiah 17, 13. Well, I don't know exactly what he wrote, but I do know this. To a Jewish person, what would the writing of a finger remind them of? It's the only place in the Gospels where Jesus is said to be writing, and he's not writing with a pen, he's writing with a finger. What wrote the Ten Commandments, Exodus 31, 18? The finger of God. Hmm. Interesting. All we know is they continued asking him. He raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Whatever he wrote, as again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, they must have seen it, they must have been reminded of it, and they must have been convicted, because watch. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience, this is a fascinating, I can't wait to get to heaven and ask the Lord about this one. Because they went out one by one, and it says specifically why. I I don't, I got to tell you, I don't know. Beginning with the oldest, even to the last, every last one of the accusers is convicted to the heart. I mean, these people are full of hate and bitterness, and something that Jesus has done here has convicted them so that they threw down their rock and left. And it says that they did it the oldest to the youngest or even to the last. Why? I don't know. Is it because when we get older, we get wiser? I'm not sure that's happened in my case, but maybe it is. And maybe you're more teachable. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'm less teachable. Pray, pray for me. But whatever, it did something. And the oldest, even to the last, Watch this. This is startling if you think about it. Don't just think about this for the, fir- or for the 500th time because you've read it so much. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman was standing in the midst. <laughs> the divine, eternal, sinless one is face to face with the human, sinful woman. And watch, three minutes before this, I want you to remember this, and maybe even still now she's unsure. Three minutes before this, 
She's in terror, kicking and screaming and embarrassed and humiliated and frightened and mad and sad and all those emotions because she thinks she's going to die. And now she comes face to face with Jesus himself. And the woman is standing there. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, it's just Jesus and the woman, he says to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? You think Jesus knew the answer? I think he did. But anyway, has no one condemned you? And here's the only thing you hear the woman said. She said, no one, Lord. No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus is left alone. She's gone from terror three minutes before, two minutes before, whatever the time frame is. I don't know. She's gone from terror, sadness, anxiety, fear, and Jesus says, because you've encountered me and you've seen God at work, here's what's happening. You have no more accusers, and I won't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Can you imagine, folks, what was happening in this humiliated lady's heart? At that sentence, she'd gone from all of those emotions to a person full of, watch it, relief and freedom, freedom. And she recognizes she's been saved from certain death. And all she knows is, maybe I don't know everything theologically, but that guy's the one who saved me. You, Lord, saved me. It's you. And the reason is, look at this. As we read this story, it says that she was caught in the act. Let's not, let's not um, because we feel sorry for her, and I do feel sorry for her. Where was the guy? This is ridiculous. The guy should have been there too. But let's not forget, she was guilty caught in the act. There's no evidentiary problems here, apparently, because it says she's caught in the act. There's no, we're going to file a motion to suppress the evidence based on a bad whatever. I mean, she was, they, they have it, the witnesses, they saw, the, she's has, has violated the law. And according to the law, she should be dead. But Jesus deals with the executioners, they go off the scene. There are no accusers, right? And has no one condemned you? And she says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. <laughs> oh, the freedom in this, the joy in this, the, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the new lease on life in this, the renewal, the rejuvenation, the, the happiness. I mean, can you imagine up there three minutes before, I'm never going to see my family again. I'm never going to see this. I'm, never, I'm not going to be, it's over for me.
and he saves her. This is amazing. It's a picture of our salvation. I I want you to know something. If you're sitting here and you don't know Jesus in a real and saving way, you've been caught in the act. I've been caught in the act. Remember, right from the get-go here in Genesis chapter 2, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God said, you shall surely die. Not just physically, you're going to experience spiritual separation from the Lord. That's what sin does. If you're in here and you're counting on your own good works, your own righteousness, you've got a problem because you're spiritually separated from the Lord. The Bible in Ephesians says people who are outside of Christ, and I don't say this in a spiritually superior way, people who are outside of Christ are children of wrath. That's what it says. In Ezekiel, the Old Testament, it says the soul that sins. I'm tempted to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever sinned, but I know the answer. Every one of you would put your hand up, so would I. The soul that sins surely will die. You've been caught in the act. I've been caught in the act. Who here has never coveted and broke the law of covetousness? See, You only discover the grace of God. Watch this. Man. You only discover the grace of God when you recognize you've been indicted. You know what an indictment is? Charges have been brought against you by the law of God. I understand we live in the era of grace. Nobody likes to talk about grace more than me. But the law is good in this respect. It indicts us, and it shows us our need for a Savior. Amen? You look at the law, and you go, wait a second, wait a minute. Okay, yeah, I've never murdered. Good. And Jesus says, wait a minute, if you've hated somebody in your heart, you've murdered them. Uh Uh-oh. And you kind of read down through those Ten Commandments and the law, and you go, well, I'm not that bad. But, folks, if you've sinned in this much, you've failed in all of it. And the penalty is spiritually separation from God. In other words, you've been caught in the act. I've been caught in the act. And Jesus says to the woman, I haven't condemned you. Now, just turn over, will you, to Romans chapter 8. Go to Romans chapter 8. Paul gives us this great theological uh, explanation of what happens in salvation And this is one of the great chapters of the Bible. If you wanted to unlock the mysteries of the Bible, this is one place you would go and learn. And you'd right off the bat see this. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, verse 1. Watch this, verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, see, this is where we all stand up and shout right here, has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In other words, Jesus, the sinless one, has been given all judgment, John says to us, 
But now, if you come to Christ, look, if you come to Christ, you become what's called justified, declared. It's a judicial, spiritual, legal (laughs) pronouncement. When you come to Christ, God comes down with his gavel and says, not guilty because of the blood of my son. Oh, my goodness. And not only that, because you get the very life of Christ by the Holy Spirit, you not just get declared not guilty, his righteousness is put into your spiritual bank account so that when you meet the Lord, he goes, wow. The Lord, God sees you as perfectly righteous. Is that incredible or what? You've all been, I, we've all been, we've all been caught in the act. And Jesus comes and says, there is no one to condemn you because God the Father sent the Son to take the condemnation at the cross. We walk around like a bunch of people who feel like they're condemned all the time. Anybody ever have feelings of condemnation? Raise your hand. Here you go. I got it. Those have all been dealt with by Christ. Isn't that amazing? Now, I want you to see something. This isn't easy forgiveness. Do you get this? Americans use this story to just say, well, I'll go sin like you know what and ask for forgiveness later. Wow, when I see this story, the things I can do now. Well, see, Paul deals with that in the book of Romans. He says that's sheer stupidity. No one would ever do that when you have a new nature in Christ. When you have a new nature in Christ, what do you want to do? We sang about it today. We want to please him. We want to honor him. We want to bless our father. We don't want to run around and do everything we want. See, you have freedom now not to do what you want. When we read these things about freedom, it's not freedom to do what you want and then ask for forgiveness later. It's now freedom not to sin. And that's powerful. So she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin for no more. (laughs) This is grace, but grace isn't easy or cheap. It's not some just way to get off the hook. It's not made for licentiousness. Let, Let me just take you to the book of Titus. I always take us there when I talk about cheap grace or easy grace, go to the book of Titus. That puts it to bed forever. Here's what I hear people say when you exhort them or correct them or say, here's what, where's my grace, man? Well, you don't understand grace. <laughs> We're brothers in the Lord. We're to be accountable to one another. How about this? But when the, or excuse me, it's chapter 2, verse 11. Sorry about that. For the grace of God that brings salvation. Isn't that what we're talking about in these verses? For the grace of God brings salvation has appeared to all men. Watch this. The grace of God teaches us to do some things. To deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. He tells her, go and sin no more. We should live soberly, wow, 
righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, what is it all based on? Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. Watch this. Grace people, zealous for good works. You're not saved by good works, but you're saved unto good works. That's the grace of God, and that's what he's telling her right there, packed in that little thing. And, you know, maybe she doesn't get it right yet, just like we don't get it right yet or totally get it. But she knows that he saved her. That's how we feel. That's why we can come here and sing on a Sunday morning when it's sort of gloomy outside here in southwestern PA and it's rain and you're tired and you want to stay. You're like, what? But wait a minute. Look what the Lord did for us. We're going to come together as a body and just sing out to the Lord and praise him and honor him. That's what this is all about. And I want to show you one last thing and then... Poor Xander is going to have to finish off the chapter next week. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am, here it comes, the second of the I am statements. If you don't know this, in Exodus 3, in the wilderness wanderings, Moses doesn't want to lead the people. It's so funny to me. We always say Moses is a great guy, and he was a great guy. He's a hero of the faith, but he was real, just like we're real. You ever had the Lord call on you to do some sort of ministry, and you make excuses? Okay, I do that sometimes, and here Moses is doing it, and he's like, ah, Lord, I'm just a terrible speaker. I don't think I can be the leader. And God says, hey, don't worry about it. I'll give you Aaron. I know Aaron's, your brother's a good speaker, so you'll have him. He'll be your right-hand man, no problem. And it's so funny, right? Moses then goes, yeah, I know, but I I don't even know who I should tell people you are. (laughs) I mean, it's so like us. God says, tell them I am. And then we flip all the way into the book of John, and among all the different themes that are floating around in the book of John, there's this one other theme. It's the seven, number of perfection, I am statements. The seven I am statements, and we already saw the first one, I am the bread of life. Referring to them back to the Old Testament. Now he comes and he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me, right? Uh, He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. When you first read this, you go, I mean, should that really be there? What, what, do you, what do you mean? I mean, you're talking to the lady. You're up on the Temple Mount. It's the Feast of the Tabernacles. That's over. You're in the treasury. You're doing a Bible study. You're talking about how she shouldn't be condemned. I probably, if I was doing the ministry right there, just saying, being real with you, I'd probably say, wow, that was a good job. And then he gives them truth of all truth. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. Here's the second one. I am the light of the world. Watch this. 
He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He is the light of the world. Now, if you looked in the Bible, the work of God is sometimes in Jewish thought, or many times in Jewish thought, associated with light. So God and light in the Old Testament. Look at this, Isaiah 60, the Lord is my light, or excuse me, Psalm 27, the Lord is my light. Isaiah 60, the Lord will be your everlasting light. Job 29, by his light I walk through darkness. Uh, Micah 7, when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. And some people, or some people see the sun, S-U-N, as a symbol of God when they read Psalm 84.11 and Malachi 4.2. And you know this, in 1 John 1.5, it says that God is light. And in Ephesians 5, it goes through when light is shown places, it reveals man's wickedness. And I want, you to remi- or I want to remind you of something. You learned and colored this in little Sunday school your whole life. Tell me where this is from. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. So I want you to think about something here. God created light at the beginning, and Jesus is saying here, in other words, by the way, he's saying, I'm God. But he's not just saying, I created light. He's saying, I am the light of the world. So I want you to think of something mind blown here. Drop the mic moment. At the moment that God was creating light, he was infusing, or however you want to say it, maybe this isn't even theologically correct, but he was infusing into the light, watch this, the characteristics of himself. Come on, man. Come here on a Saturday night by yourself. Hit the alarm. And then you can't find the lights. And then your mind starts racing like, did I hear somebody walking upstairs? And you're sort of creeped out a little bit. Why? Because it's dark and you can't see. What is one thing that light does? It makes you safe. Makes you comfortable. It makes you free in the sense that you watch. You know this. It shows you where you are and where you're going and how to get there. That's what light does. You guys love light. Like you put like lights on your back porch and it gets evening time, why? Because it gives you a sense of warmth and comfort and joy and kindness or whatever it does for you. And you love it and you sit out there and you watch the birds or whatever you do. You love light, it's warmth. But what else can light be? You know, if you're like a detective, what do you do? You shine the light on the person and it exposes them. And see, all of this is wrapped up in Jesus. He not only created light, he is light. And he says, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In other words, you're going to not only have a new nature, new life, that's full of life. John told us that men love the darkness. That's so true. In our sins, we like the darkness. But here he says, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of light. So I just want to finish with this. 
Jesus is the light of life, but he says, we're the light also. You know that. Why? Because we have his nature. And now watch, watch. You're to give it out to others. And how do you do it? You do it by following him. This is a real unique word in the Greek. It can mean several things. It's like military term. You know, like if you're in the military and the captain tells you and you're the private to go over there and to clean the whatever, the latrine, and you say, hey, captain, pound salt. That's not what you say in the military. You know what you say in the military? Okay, yes, sir. And the weird thing about that word is for the military, sometimes, just be honest, the guy over you or the girl, you know, the guy or the gal who's over you, the, 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 the officer, sometimes they can just be harsh and awful and really don't have your best interest at heart. Sometimes they can, and a lot of times they can, but sometimes no. But this word means you're going to be following the one who always has your best at heart. He never doesn't have your best at heart. It could also mean follow like teaching. It also can mean follow like slave. And the Bible calls us a bondservant, a willing slave that we link up to Jesus. So we follow him. And when you follow him, you're not to be one who's walking in darkness. Now, what, what does that mean? You know this. If you want to love the Lord back, you know how to love the Lord back. Bible tells us, John tells us in his letter, Obey his commands. Obey him. Just obey what he has for you. You tell the Lord you love him, not only through this, you do do that. You tell him when you obey his commands. Now what? Boy, we'll ruffle some feathers now. What are the commands you're under? To love people. You go, oh good, I'm a Christian, I could do that. God bless you. What if they're not a Republican? What if they want a mask on? What if they want a vaccine? What if they have liberal politics? Jesus never said, love all the people who think like you. In fact, he said, even when they're enemies, I want you to love them. And the command for you is to love people, to love God and to love people. And I know, because <laughs> I see your Facebook posts, it's hard in your own strength. But we just read it, didn't we? We said that we were uh, called to walk according to the Spirit, not according to our own strength. Do you think people, God loves the people across the aisle from you politically? He sent his son to die for them or for us. Now, don't let that be a downer. Let's be obedient and let's love people. Let's love them really. Hey, telling the truth is love too. No one's saying that. But the way in which some of us deliver truth is brutal. It's not loving. So we can be people who deliver truth gracefully and can deliver grace truthfully. And Jesus was the perfect blend. Now watch this, final thing. 
In the two previous chapters, I am the bread of life, spoke of the manna in the wilderness. The last chapter, living waters can be yours if you're in Christ, spoke of Moses hitting the rock. Here Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What was this all about? Do you know in the wilderness wanderings, the Lord did something so amazing and gracious. When they were out in the wilderness, you remember this? There was some sort of pillar, a pillar. Think about it. It wasn't just a cloud. I mean, it was a cloud, but it was a pillar of some sort, a pillar of cloud by day. And what was it at night? Fire at night. And it was always there. I want you to think about it. What does light tell us? And this is a reference, I believe, to that. They knew it. What is that a reference to? That fire at night. You know what you would do? I mean, think about the pillar of fire. I don't know about you, but when you get to be 55, you wake up every night at 3 a.m. Hot, can't sleep, wondering what you're going to do for the next two hours. No one's, no one's struggling with that but me. Think about it. If I was in the wilderness, I'd look out the tent. There'd be the fire. And I would say to myself, and I would, I'd go, oh my goodness, Lord, thank you so much. You're so faithful. Every single night out here, there's a fire. So that one, we know that you care. You know, we know who you say you are is true. We know that you're faithful and we know that you're here to protect us and guide us even in this really difficult circumstance that was of our own doing. We should have just been here a couple weeks and we ended up being here for 40 years. And you still met us there. You talk about grace. That's who God is. Well, do me a favor and let's pray. And if there's anyone here who's outside of Christ and wants to pray to be in Christ, guess what? He pulls or takes away your condemnation. Bible says in Romans 5, you can have peace with God. We have peace now with God by the blood of Jesus. If that's never happened for you, I want you to bow your heads with me, all of us, and pray and ask the Lord to come into your life and save you because you've been caught in the act from your sins. And then afterwards, I'd ask you to come up and talk with me. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day and thank you for uh, these people and their hearts to know you and to serve you and to love you. And I just pray, Lord, that you would bless these people in a mighty way, that as you're speaking here through your word, that you would fill them up with your Holy Spirit, to go out and to love a hurting and dying world, to be people who recognize they've been caught in the act and condemnation has been removed so that they could be people who would be gentle yet truthful with others. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.